to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and affect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Hello, Truth and Liberty fans. I'm Richard Harris, and uh, this is the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I think today is going to be a really special program. Uh, we're going to be talking about something that I think is just, uh, you know, like ground, ground zero in, in the Great Commission, and uh, just really excited about it. Before I introduce our guests, though, uh, I did want to just share with you guys um, that this is, as you know, a live call-in show. So there's a number on the screen in your upper right-hand corner. Just call in 719-619-2341 with any questions today. We'd love to hear from you or comments about what you're hearing or what's in the news, any Bible questions, more than happy to, uh, uh, to handle any of that. So looking forward to hearing from you guys today. Hey, uh, you may have heard already, but the annual Ministers Conference is coming up here at Andrew Womack Ministries, um, and that is going to be October 2nd through the 6th, the annual ministers conference. Um, Andrew will be ministering along with Mike and Carrie Pickett, Bob Yandian, Pastor Dwayne Sheriff. He's one of our hosts now on Truth and Liberty. Uh, Pastor Bob Nichols, Greg Moore, Wendell Parr, and Billy Epperhart. So it's a star-studded lineup uh, you won't want to miss. If you're in ministry, uh, that's important. You know, it's important for us in ministry to get away so where we can get our batteries recharged, we can get refocused uh, on Christ. You know, I was just reading in in, uh, in the Gospel of Mark this morning where it says that Jesus took the disciples away. Uh, he, he recognized that they needed a time of rest. And uh, unfortunately, he got uh, you know, mobbed by the crowd and had to multiply the loaves and fishes. But even rest was important even for Jesus and the disciples. So if you're in ministry or you're, you think your pastor needs a break, send them to the minister's conference April 2nd and 6th. You can register on our website at awmi.net for that free event. It's going to be awesome. Uh, also, if you're watching today and you're in need of prayer or you want someone to agree with you in prayer, please feel free to call in to Andrew's prayer line and that number 24-7. It's open 24-7, 365 now. The number is 719-635-1111. And I tell you guys, uh, I've said this before, but we get miracles out of the prayer center, prayer line every single day here at Andrew Womack Ministries. People are getting saved, filled with the Spirit, healed, uh, and just all kinds of fantastic testimonies. So, all right. Having said that, uh, I'd like to introduce to you our special guest for today's program. And it's my sort of new friend, Quinn Freiberg. And Quinn is um, a pastor at a church called Family Worship Center in the town of Pueblo, Colorado. And uh, he is, uh, as you can tell, he's on the screen now. Quinn is a young man, but what a powerhouse. Uh, he's doing a work down there in the city of Pueblo that to me needs to be held up as an example for everybody to follow. It's so exciting exciting what he's doing. And uh, Quinn, thank you for coming on the program today. We're so glad to have you. Well, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. So brother, why don't we just start off? You can share a little bit about your background. I was reading your bio. I, I think you have some training in not just, uh, you know, uh, ministry, but apologetics and philosophy and some stuff like that. What's your, what's your background? Yeah, I was, uh, Raised here in Colorado, um, spent the last 20 years, uh, 22 years down here in Pueblo. 
Um, I went into ministry in 2013. Uh, I was hired as an apologist at Family Worship Center, and so my uh, primary focus was uh, the defense of the Christian faith. Uh, did a lot of teaching on different topics, still do that. That's still uh, very near and dear to me as far as uh, one of my passions. Uh, just being able to talk with people, answer questions, explain, you know, the reasons for the hope that is in us is how Peter would say it. And so 2013 went into ministry and apologetics. Uh, along the way, in a church uh, environment, you end up picking up things along the way. And so eventually moved into discipleship ministry as well, moved into uh, now school administration uh, for two schools down here in Pueblo and really trying to impact these students with a biblical worldview, a solid grounding in the faith. Uh, and really it all comes back to that uh, for my personal ministry is I want people to be convinced that the Bible's the word of God, that what we believe is true, it's grounded in reality, we have reasons. And so that's really where it all started was apologetics. Well, that's great. Well, you know, one of the hosts of Truth and Liberty now is our, my good friend, Alex McFarland. I don't know if you've heard of Alex or not, but he's published mm -hmm. lots and lots of books and he's an apologist. And just for uh, everybody who's watching, uh, if you're not familiar with that term, it, an apologist doesn't mean someone who uh, says they're sorry for being a Christian. <laughs> apologetics, right. how would you define apologetics, Quinn? Uh, share yeah, that with us. It is the discipline of giving answers and reasons for why we believe what we believe. Okay, so uh, yeah, and, and boy, is there ever a time when we need apologetics? It's got to oh, be man. this this day and hour. And and I learned when you you actually um, led a workshop at our recent Truth and Liberty conference, and uh, I learned uh, from you then that you actually come from a family of missionaries. Is that right? Yeah, and I was never personally overseas, but my parents, uh, my dad grew up in Iran and Afghanistan. Uh, so my grandparents on my dad's side were missionaries there for about 20 years in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and then my mom's side of the family uh, was from, they weren't from, but they were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. Uh, so my mom was there for I want to say the first 20 years of her life, uh, they were missionaries over there. I still have cousins over in Papua New Guinea. I still have family in Iran and Afghanistan, uh, cousins, aunts, uncles who are missionaries. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of missionaries uh, in, the, in the family line. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, pra praise God for that heritage. That's fantastic. Yeah. But now you're, you're an associate pastor at the, this church in Pueblo, and it must be an awesome church for them to have an apologetics pastor. That's a rarity. <laughs> so praise yeah, God different. for that. But um, tell us a little bit, because I, I want to lay the groundwork here for, for what you're doing there in Pueblo. And so uh, most of our viewers, of course, have never been to Pueblo, Colorado, don't know much about it. What's Pueblo like? Is it, is it a special, different, uh, unique, or is it pretty much you got the same problems as everybody else? What can you tell us about your town? Yeah, uh, Pueblo is a medium-sized town. There's, uh, in the county, there's about 170,000 people. Uh, so not too big, not too small. Uh, when you look at the problems Pueblo faces, uh, it's a lot of the same problems everywhere has. Um, I think Pueblo, it's just uh, exaggerated compared to most places, at least most places in Colorado, uh, the problems are exaggerated. So homelessness is an issue in a lot of areas, uh, but it's kind of exaggerated here. Crime 
is an issue in a lot of places. Uh, we just happen to top the, the rankings on uh, crime and homelessness and mental health problems for the state of Colorado. Um, I personally love Pueblo. Uh, it's very family oriented. Uh, I, I love this town. I, I've lived here for 22 years. I'm raising a family here. Uh, so I love Pueblo, but it has problems and it's the same but exaggerated forms of the problems everyone faces. Well, so um, uh, your approach has is really um, that, that you've taken, you, you've picked up the ball or a mantle of leadership, if you will, where um, here, let me just tell you this, in the practical government school here at Karis, um, one time I was, uh, uh, we had a, a minister in who was teaching to our students, and he's actually a bishop from the nation of Uganda, <clears throat> and he is the head of a Pentecostal denomination that has thousands of churches in it. And um, he's had incredible influence there over governmental leaders and this sort of thing. And one of the students in our government class actually felt called to be a pastor. And he pulled him aside one day and started talking to him. And he said to him, you know, what you need to do is you need to make sure that you see yourself as a pastor over the whole community, not just your church. You should walk the town praying over it and, uh, you know, claim it all as your own, not, not for the sake of building your own ministry, but because that's, that's what you've been called to do. That's where your spiritual authority lies. And, and I think um, you've done that in Pueblo by the work you're doing in this, uh, this ministry called Forge Pueblo. Um, but before we get into that, I want also people to understand about the seven mountains of cultural influence. Um, so we talk about that a lot here on Truth and Liberty, that there are, it doesn't matter which culture you're in around the globe, but there are arenas of influence. There are aspects of human society and behavior, whether you're in Indonesia or you're in Iceland, it doesn't really matter. Um, and one of those is the church. One of them is business, education, um, and uh, family, religion, uh, and so on down the line. And how have you used that approach or that framework for uh, becoming a, a, a source of solutions in Pueblo, Quinn? Yeah, the, the first time I was um, introduced to this idea, it was actually as a teenager. It wasn't mountains in his particular series, but if you remember, Del Tackett had the Truth Project, mm -hmm. and he had seven pillars, but they end up being the exact same thing as the seven mountains uh, or the seven spheres. And so this, this concept of uh, any society or community is composed of these seven uh, key areas of influence. And what, what we've done with it, I think, it helps create kind of a template for what are the areas we need to focus on or, or how do you narrow down society and, and culture into uh, zones that you can put uh, focus onto. Uh, if you just take the whole thing, that, that's overwhelming trying to figure out how do I impact this. Uh, so what is done very practically for us is we can say, all right, we're going to move our efforts now into this next sphere or this next mountain. Uh, so for example, right now, uh, the most recent one that we moved into uh, is actually business. So we move into the sphere of business, not leaving any that we're already in, but advancing into the next sphere, so to say. Um, it's really created structure, and I, and I think the structure has helped to understand these are the key areas of influence that we should be reaching our culture through and influencing our culture through. And then it provides practical structure to create um, 
programs, to create uh, organizations, whatever that looks like, which we can talk about in a moment, uh, to start to impact those areas and influence them. Yeah, so um, folks, I just want to uh, remind you today, this is the Truth and Liberty Live Colin Show, and my guest today is Pastor Quinn Freiberg, an associate pastor at Family Worship Center in Pueblo, Colorado. He started an organization called Forge Pueblo, and we're, gonna, we're talking about that, just getting into it. But if you've got questions or comments today for us on any Bible topic or on this Forge Pueblo or any current events, please feel free to call in. We'd love to hear from you. The number is 719-619-2300. Three, four, one. All right, so, so uh, Quinn, you know, Jesus in the Great Commission, it, it says that He came unto His disciples and He said unto them, All authority in heaven and earth is given unto me, go ye therefore, uh, and disciple or make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Um, and so uh, I ask, the, you know, I think most Christians, when we think about the Great Commission, we think of maybe, maybe trying to lead individuals to Jesus on a one-on-one -on -one basis. And, and that's about as far as our thought process goes. But if you look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus said, make disciples of nations. And so I'm wondering, how do you do that? Uh, how do you oh. disciple a nation? Does that, does that go hand in hand with the seven mountains approach? I, I think they can work together for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna act like I've solved that whole puzzle. Uh, however, I, I think being able to provide large scale influence into whatever your culture is with the truth of God's word and, and a biblical worldview um, is, is one of the most practical ways to disciple a nation. So in, in each of these spheres, understanding what, what does God's word say about it? What is the truth about it? Um, how can we influence our culture and, and direct them to Christ so that they can observe all things that he commands? Because obviously the first thing that an individual needs would be to know Christ, but then mm -hmm. it goes beyond just, you know, I said a prayer and, and, I, and I believe in Jesus. The, the whole point is to become this lifelong follower, this, this individual who is pursuing Christ and going out and teaching others now and impacting our world, impacting our culture, uh, making disciples of, of individuals and nations, right? And mm -hmm. I, think, um, <clears throat> I think the spheres or the mountains uh, give us just, again, practical areas that we can focus in on and strategize for how do we bring the truth of God's word to these areas so that we might uh, disciple the nation in that sense. Right. Well, okay, so let's let's look at some of these. I think one of the things that you've done, if I understand it right, is uh, you've you've uh, created networks within Forge uh, Pueblo uh, for some of these mountains, like let's say the church or or the religion mountains, so to speak. Now, obviously, we don't go in and, and try to network um, Muslims particularly, but um, um, but but you have formed a network of churches in in the city and in the county. And how's that gone? Um, at first, it was very difficult uh, because churches, and I don't, not any specific church in mind when I say this, just in general, churches can be territorial. And I don't think that's just here. I think that's in, in many places. You run into uh, churches not wanting to work together. Uh, we started this in 2018, uh, so it's been six years. And we have seen a, a decent change, though, in that attitude. And I think what's happening in our culture 
is things are becoming so polarized, light and dark, uh, that that churches are figuring out we're we're going to work together or we're going to die apart. I mean, mm-hmm. it's time for the body of Christ to come together to unite. Um, you know, we have some differences, and there are some differences that are important. Uh, but but by and large, a, a Bible believing church coming together with other Bible believing churches in order to impact our culture uh, is much easier now than six years ago. Um, we, we get decent reception uh, from churches. Um, right now there's uh, 18 or so churches in our network, and uh, the, uh, the extent that they're involved is up to them, uh, but it's just regular communication and networking on how we can impact our local community here in Pueblo uh, in, in any of these seven spheres is the idea. So the uh, uniting the churches, if I understand your experience right, uh, uh, getting them on the same page uh, or at least agreeing to to communicate together has allowed you then to build out your network into some of the other uh, areas of influence. Is that Yeah, so the the church network is the central network to all that we do. That was the first network that we built. Um, When talking about the body of Christ, obviously there's no more centralized, already existing uh, group than the church. And so having the church network, this team of leaders from different churches uh, come together, uh, they then form the leadership teams and they start to build efforts in these other spheres of influence um, out of the church network. So I think churches and I think local churches are, are very important. They are the core of uh, really the, the hands and feet of Christ so much as the local church has the potential to make such a drastic change in our society. Uh, I think the change will be significantly increased if they are willing to work together to bring kind of a larger scale impact on their community. But churches are the center as far as the spheres go. Yeah, so um, the, uh, you've also gotten involved in the arena of, um, of government um, oh, yeah. And I know that's like, what, what, a church involved in government? So what have you guys been able to do um, to influence government um, to be more, uh, to operate more consistently with God's word? Yeah, um, so the way it started in government, uh, the government sphere is handled by the board of directors of Forging Pueblo as a whole, uh, only because it's so easy to get in trouble in this area that we kind of hold this one tight with, with the group who founded this. Uh, and then we work with the church network as, as that board. So we started out with voter guides, uh, which I think are very helpful. That was the first approach that we took. Uh, and we still do that to trying to influence local government. And, and our focus is just on Pueblo. Um, and we actually just focus on races relevant to Pueblo. We don't focus on state races. We don't focus on national races. It's just local races that we're concerning ourselves with. We want to channel our energy into our uh, neighborhood in that sense. And so we did voter guides for a few years. Um, we did start to recruit after about three years uh, some candidates uh, along the way. So we have several candidates who are on um, different uh, school boards or, you know, like the Pueblo West Metropolitan Board. We have two candidates that won that earlier this year. Um, so that was that was great to see. Um, we, this fall, have gotten a lot more aggressive. 
last year, and, and the reason why uh, there's so much more momentum behind this right now, last year uh, there was an abortion facility that opened in Pueblo uh, by a late-term abortionist. And, and that got a lot of churches really rallying around the cause of changing our local government. And so uh, this fall, we have recruited um, a mayor candidate, a council person to run for every seat, a school board individual to run for every seat. Um, there's even a Board of Water Works uh, individual, but they're uncontested, so that's helpful. Uh, <laughs> so now it's finding candidates, and that's working with churches. How do we identify who would be good uh, to run for these offices. Um, and then, <clears throat> as far as supporting the candidate, uh, that's done by a political committee that we have set up. Uh, that committee is the one, um, it's called, well, I probably shouldn't say what it's called right now, but uh, that's the political committee that will work directly with the candidates, um, just to you know, stay completely uh, black and white on what we should or should not be doing with our uh, legal entity. So, mm -hmm. uh, Forging Pueblo is actually a, a series of organizations now. Um, and there is a core one, but there are multiple organizations um, under Forging, uh, under that kind of network that are, that are active now. So, so your your churches that are participating in Forge Colorado uh, Pueblo, they don't mm -hmm. directly support candidates or oppose candidates, right? Uh, some of them do, uh, and that's up to the church's discretion. I see. Um, so, what we do, uh, there's voter guides, and that's that's an easier thing to convince a church to do, even ones outside of our network. That's easier. Um, churches are, are more working behind the scenes as far as recruiting canvassers, recruiting people to put signs up in their yards. And so there's a lot of behind the scenes like that taking place. Um, and then a church, uh, and, and they haven't come out yet, but we, we're making uh, short videos uh, of candidates. Um, the videos will have uh, neutral versions where it doesn't say vote for uh, so-and-so. Uh, and then there'll be more straightforward versions that say so-and-so is running for city council. Um, <clears throat> and so these candidates, uh, they all have a biblical worldview, solid Christians. Um, they'll make videos about why Christians should be involved. We need to get out there. We can change our community. And so just the name recognition, uh, having those videos played in churches and them getting to see the name and the individual and, and their heart for the community and Christ, even if we don't say candidate for, uh, in the video still does a whole lot, uh, but there are some churches who are willing to play uh, a video that says candidate for mayor, candidate for city council, but that part's up to the discretion of the church. We try to give a range of what they can do uh, so that we don't miss anyone. You know, and I, I believe that uh, constitutionally, uh, churches have absolute freedom to speak and to engage in uh, politics. There's no ban on that. Um, oh, I agree. Th there is a provision in, in one particular section of the IRS code that restricts it, yeah. uh, but churches can are automatically tax exempt without even going under that section. So uh, I could talk more about that, but, but I, I, I want to know like what success have you had so far? Have any, have your efforts resulted in any uh, biblically minded conservatives uh, actually winning public office? Yeah, this year, well, I shouldn't say this year, the last off-year election um, was the first one where we recruited candidates into the race. That was just for um, a, a school board race. 
Um, the, the primary person we recruited did win um, and is incumbent again, uncontested, so he'll win again. Uh, we then supported some of the others. Uh, three of the four won, and so that district was actually flipped last uh, off your election. Um, so that was the first kind of success that we saw in, in Pueblo County um, for this type of a worldview taking any major stance of influence. Um, earlier this year, as I said, was the next off-year election that came around, and that was with a metro board for a metropolitan uh, Pueblo West. Um, and we had two candidates that we were uh, supporting and recruited. Uh, they both won. I don't know what's going to happen this fall. Um, we could lose it all, we could win it all, or somewhere in between. Um, we, we do have uh, some, some faith and hope because we've, we've had some success, and I think uh, God's on our side in this. Um, whatever, whatever the outcome, we're going to keep putting our effort in each round, though, and do what we can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, folks, this is the Truth and Liberty Live Calling Show, and my guest is uh, Pastor Quinn Freiberg of Family Worship Center in Pueblo, Colorado. And we're talking about an organization that he uh, founded and I think is the president of called Forge Pueblo and how he is using the Seven Mountains model or, or framework to expand the influence of the gospel into the culture of his local community uh, to influence um, uh, the community for Christ. And so it's amazing. Uh, they're actually getting uh, local candidates recruited, vetted, and elected to public office. Well, Quinn, we've got three minutes left in this segment and no rush, but how about education? What are you guys doing in the field of um, education? Because I think there's quite a bit there. Yeah, this is the field that I'm, sounds weird because government's the one that seems the most exciting. Education's actually what excites me the most right this moment. Um, I'm gung-ho behind government sphere as well, uh, but there has uh, been ways discovered recently to help uh, start private Christian schools uh, with uh, funding support, not, not like a full state funding, but with support financially. And so we have taken a decent shift in our educational focus to now working on opening private Christian schools in churches uh, in order to buy, provide affordable opportunities for kids to get out of the public school system. So I, I started a school at Family Worship Center uh, three years ago now. It's a middle high school that's been going uh, very well this last year, uh, not this uh, last month, uh, this year. Uh, we started an elementary school at a different church in town, uh, Forging Education, uh, started an elementary school. Um, I helped start a homeschool enrichment program to help homeschool families. Uh, and then focusing on trying to get a new school board uh, for the public school district. So that's that's really where the focus has been at uh, the last couple of months in education. Uh, but moving forward, I, actually tonight I'm meeting with a church who's interested in a private school. So I'm meeting with their elders uh, to go over what that would look like for them. Um, I'm, I'm very focused on Pueblo. I'm happy to talk with people outside of Pueblo, but I'm very focused on Pueblo. Uh, Pueblo has, uh, don't quote me on this, 10,000 plus, it's, it's more than 10,000 students in schools. And uh, if all the private schools right now uh, were packed, all the Christian private schools, if they were packed to full capacity, uh, we, we can't even grab 8% of that. Um, so we need more schools. And so I'm, I'm charging in that direction as much as I can to try to get kids out of the system. Wow, that's amazing. So it's, here we have a pastor who's actually taking responsibility 
to uh, solve the education problem in his local community, not just for the families in his church, but uh, at a much broader level uh, to create opportunities for children across the community. That's just absolutely inspiring and awesome, and I want to know more about it. We've got 20 seconds left in this segment, so I just want to remind folks to call in with your questions. Our lines are open, 719-619-2341, about any subject, and we look forward to hearing from you. Uh, And we've got a break coming up now of about 90 seconds. We're going to share some important information, and then we will be right back with Pastor Quinn Freiberg. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. You were created with a purpose, written in the heart of God, long before you were born. He is calling you to find it. We want to help you experience His unconditional love, to be equipped and empowered to become a world changer. Hey everybody, Richard Harris here. I wanted to let you know that the Truth and Liberty live call-in show is now on Twitter. You can watch us there at 3.30 Mountain Time, 5.30 Eastern Time, five days a week. Just go and follow us on Twitter at Truth and Liberty Co. That's C-O. And remember, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So don't miss out. Watch us live on Twitter. Okay, we're back here on the Truth and Liberty live calling show with uh, Pastor Quinn Freiberg, and we're talking about uh, uh, an organization he started called Forge Pueblo. He's in Pueblo, Colorado, a medium-sized community, and I tell you, he's leading an effort of churches and Christians in this town to um, take the gospel into the culture, into the seven mountains of uh, cultural influence, and I think he's an example for all of us, and this is just amazing. I want to dive a little bit deeper with you, uh, Pastor Quinn, if I could. Let me let me ask you: How are you? How have you gone about getting pastors in Pueblo uh, to buy into this whole movement? Um, because m- my yeah. experience is that that's one of the toughest jobs we've got is to change the way pastors think about getting involved in the public square. Yeah, I, I think what was uh, most helpful when we first had a meeting. Um, I think what made the difference was who the team was originally. Uh, I think pastors are very weary of individuals that they don't know well. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't uh, have, have a relationship with anyone. And so <clears throat> I honestly think the most important thing we did in this regard was be very specific about who was on the board of directors when we originally uh, pitched the idea to pastors. Uh, to try to come together and have this type of of an organization. So tell me a little bit more, like what was your thinking? What was your thought process? Are you trying to find people to serve on your board that are are well-respected or that are tied to the 
to the churches in some way or, or both? Yeah, so, so what we did, uh, the goal was uh, first, we want people who are, there's the well-respected, those general rules, but we wanted people from a multiplicity of churches. Um, not everybody had to be from a different church, but we wanted multiple churches represented. Um, we wanted people who had a lot of connections in the church or business world in our community. Uh, so, for example, one of the founding members uh, is Tamara Axworthy. She is the CEO of the Karen Pregnancy Center uh, down here in Pueblo. And so she knows more pastors than anybody else in town knows, being the head of the local pregnancy center. Uh, she is very well respected. She's a good friend, um, solid Christian. Uh, so people like that who have a lot of connections and are trusted already by the church community, uh, people like uh, Stephanie Luck, she's a state representative, um, a, a Christian, a, a conservative. She knows many of the pastors in town. The idea was when we sat down with a group of churches, and we originally pitched it to 12 churches to start, uh, we wanted every pastor to know at least two people on the board of directors. Yes. Um, and we, we handpicked which churches we were going to ask first based on who do we have the strongest connections to. And then once you get a foundation and you start doing things, then it's much easier to pitch it to another church that you don't have quite as much of a connection with uh, because they can already see a community of churches have bought in. So, so you really you, have to think through that initial phase. Yeah, it's probably it's probably really critical. Do, so do you have um, uh, in each of these arenas, education, business, church, um, uh, do you uh, and government, do you have separate boards and separate networks uh, for each of those? And and if so, then how does the whole thing pull together? How does the whole thing relate? How yeah, do you keep so the, it unified and on the same track? <laughs> The, the board of directors uh, broadly over the original organization uh, that we put together, uh, that board of directors handles large picture budget and movement of the organization, which spheres we want to develop next. And then most importantly, they handle the primary decisions behind the government sphere, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, that board then uh, created and pulled together this network of church leaders who form the, uh, you know, religion sphere, but really the church sphere is what that is. And then the church sphere ended up bringing together the different directors and teams for any other spheres that are developed. So the educational team, um, that's a, we're incorporated as a nonprofit under Forging Education, and there's a board of directors um, for Forging Education. Uh, forging business. There's a separate group of eight people who are uh, directors and officers for that effort. Um, forging family is the one we're piecing together right this minute. Um, so the primary board designed the church network leadership board, and then that church network started building everything else. Well, and, and so does each network have its own meetings, and then you have maybe a a master meeting for the whole organization every so often and, and that yeah, kind of thing? Yeah. yeah. So I, I highly suggest if anybody wants to do something like this, at the very beginning we tried meeting um, 
quarterly, and that did not work. Uh, there's way too much time between meetings. You don't move along fast enough. And then we tried meeting weekly, and that didn't work uh, because it's too demanding. Uh, so every uh, tactical network is what we call them. Uh, every leadership team meets monthly. They meet separately, and then twice a year, all of the leadership meets together for an update on what's happening across the board. Wow, that's amazing. And so um, the, let's go back to education for just a second, Quinn, if we can. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious about um, like uh, your interaction with public schools. So getting, getting uh, families to either go to private Christian school or to homeschool is one approach, but what about influencing public schools themselves? Are you doing anything in that arena? Uh, we, we try to more partner with existing programs so far. It is very hard to get into uh, the, the main district down here. Um, they are not very friendly uh, to, to our worldview. We are trying right now, the business network actually, is trying right now to get into the schools for a team of businessmen and women who will present for career days and come in and tell you what it's like to be you know, a doctor, whatever it may be, um, but then also include their faith uh, as much as they can into that presentation. So, so that's a program that we're designing now that would actually originate with us. Uh, but if I'm being completely honest, <laughs> um, in, in my mind, it's, it's so hard uh, unless you change some larger scale structure uh, to make a lot of headway in the district down here which is why almost all of our efforts have been, how can we flip a school board? Uh, how, can we, how can we change the leadership behind this, get different administrative leaders? Get, how can we start top and move down in that case to where they'll be more friendly to us bringing in these programs? Because right now they're not. Yeah, because the education establishment in America is, is uh, almost fully dominated by hard yeah hard leftists, not, not even oh. moderates, but hard left people, uh, LGBT ideology, Marxist ideology, um, anti-American uh, ideology uh, is just, you know, fills their ranks. Uh, and even, you know, here in Colorado, we had the, the state teachers union actually, actually passed a resolution uh, condemning capitalism, saying that capitalism was a source yep. of oppression in all sorts of ways. And it, it, it's, um, it's not only factually wrong and reflects an incredible ignorance on the part of our teachers, uh, but the, the scary, it's a scary idea. We're talking about communism now. Our yeah. teachers, the people that have custody of our children 40 hours a week are embracing Marxism. So if we think they're going to embrace Marxism openly like that and not try to pass that ideology along to our children, then, then we've got our heads in the sand. And Marxism, communism, you know, killed more, uh, you know, how many? 60 million people in the 20th century. It was the most deadly yeah. um, force, you know, the world has seen. So uh, this is how bad it is. So I, I don't condemn you in that observation at all. I understand it. But what about teachers uh, in the schools? Do you do anything to try to encourage and, and minister to them? Yeah, and, and a lot of teachers right now, um, it's actually, and, and this is where I'm, I'm torn here, if I'm being honest. Um, in one sense, I want to give the teachers a way out into a private Christian environment. We've done that for several teachers to where we hire them into our private schools. Uh, and on the other side, 
you know, I am a fan of a solid Christian teacher trying to influence the, the system from the inside, even if, uh, however unpopular it may be, uh, I think every Christian parent that has the ability ought to get their kids out of there immediately. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's so dangerous to be in the system as the kid, uh, but I'm, I'm happy for the teachers. Uh, we, we have resources available. We have um, <clears throat> some attorneys uh, who are willing to work with teachers if they want to know where the lines are, uh, how much they can do in a classroom, what they shouldn't do uh, if they're worried about losing their job. Um, so we, we have those types of resources available. We've had um, a Christian attorney um, who's been very, very helpful, uh, who I won't name, but been, been very helpful uh, as a resource, uh, an educational attorney willing to work with any, any teacher, any school board candidate, anybody who needs help in that arena. Uh, so he's been a huge resource uh, for our organization. Excellent. Well, uh, Quinn, I'd, uh, we've got some callers on the line now. I'd like to go ahead and start taking some questions, and um, uh, we can come back to some of these things if we need to. But let's first go to Randall, uh, who's a Truth and Liberty subscriber, and I think he's also a Karis Bible College student. Uh, hi, Randall. You're on the air. What's your question today? Yes, Richard. Thank you for taking my call. Um, and God bless both of you pastors for actually having spines and standing for not only the Word of God, but our constitutional republic in your churches. Mm. Um, my question is, why are pastors, and I, being a PGS student, I'm pretty sure I'll know the answer to this, but why are pastors not calling out known communists and jihadists um, in their communities uh, when these people have no problem putting all these hostile labels on the Christian. All right. Well, thank you for that question. Um, Quinn, do you have, uh, you have a response to that? Yeah, I mean, I think to start out, um, you know, the way we call them out should probably be different than the way they call us out, right? So they're, they're yelling every word in the book um, towards those of us who are taking a stand. Uh, but I am sympathetic. I, I do wonder why more pastors won't call out individuals in their community. Uh, so allow me to, without naming the individual, unless you want me to, uh, give an example. We have an individual on our city council here um, who they let go out of the room during every prayer, every pledge of allegiance. He's allowed to skip and come into the meeting late um, because he is anti-flag, anti-America, anti-everything uh, that you and I would probably stand for. Um, and I think it would be appropriate for pastors uh, to take a stand and say, this, this isn't right. Um, why don't they? I, I think it always comes down uh, or at least almost always comes down, not to a problem on taxes. It's not about 501c3 status. It is always about will it um, cause division in their congregation and upset uh, members of the church. That's always, for me, when I've talked to them, what it comes down to. They are not worried about their tax status. They are worried about polarizing their church congregation uh, by taking a stand on anything like this. Hmm. And, and uh, you know, we, at our conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Lucas Miles was one of our speakers, and he's studied 
this issue in depth, and that's exactly what he said, that most of the time 501c3 has nothing to do with it. It's really the pastor's afraid of losing members. Um, yeah. And so uh, in, in, in this situation, I, I'd like to add that I think as well that, um, uh, how do I say this? Christians in general have bought into a gospel of nice. Do you understand what I mean? That we, we, we think that, that loving others means that we always have to be nice. Um, now, what, uh, but we, we never want to be cruel. We never want to be mean. We never want to be vindictive. Um, but, you know, if you read the Gospels, there were times when Jesus was absolutely not nice. I mean, it was not nice to turn over those money changers tables, was it, right? That's pretty dramatic. It's not nice to make a whip and start running around the temple driving people out um, who up until then have been allowed to be there. So calling people whitewashed sepulchers and, and uh, you know, um, asps and things like this. So I think that, that we, that's an, another part of the problem here is we, I mean, in, in Christianity today, we're still not on a war footing, are we? I mean, we're, we're resting on the laurels of generations gone by thinking we still have a Christian culture and uh, not realizing that, that we have got to put on the armor of God and, and uh, abandon the fear of man and start attacking the strongholds of the devil with the love of God and the truth of God. So that's kind of my two cents on it, Randall. Um, yeah. And uh, we need to start uh, speaking up about, about this problem as well. So thank you for your question. Um, we've got another caller on the line, and this is Peter from California. Peter, thanks for calling in today. What's your question, sir? Yes, I'd like to ask the question, how can one break the government's monopoly on education, specifically financially? Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Quinn. <laughs> yeah, you know, there are efforts uh, to do this without giving much detail. Um, it, if it's going to happen, and in my perspective, it has to happen in the courts somehow uh, to where the courts would have to end up ruling on parental choice for the money uh, that is allotted from the government to a student to be able to go to where a parent wants the money to go, even if that is uh, a religious school or a Christian school. Um, so that's, that's a really practical angle that people are trying to work right now. And I know some people trying to work that in Colorado right now. Um, in California, man, I don't know how to break the grasp on on the government in california um you know by and large i think you just got to get out of the system though if you don't want the government to have the influence they have get your kid out um and for churches provide as many opportunities have opportunities as you can for kids to get out uh so that's kind of my thought process yeah, it, it is pretty much that basic, isn't it? Um, now, we do have some good news, Peter, in that um, <clears throat> this year or last year, I'm not sure the exact date, but the United States Supreme Court decided a very important case uh, holding that, um, a, a, that vouchers, public school, or vou vouchers in education, and they come under lots of different names, uh, but where the state uh, sets aside or refunds um, tax dollars to a taxpayer uh, that would otherwise go towards public education and they allow the parent to direct 
where that those tax dollars get spent for their child's education, um, that that is constitutional, and furthermore, that the government in such a program cannot discriminate against Christian education. Uh, so a parent can constitutionally, if the if the program exists now. You, you got to get it passed first. So California, that's going to be a big lift. But you got to get it passed. And once it's passed, the government can't say, no, we're not giving money to, to Christian schools because they're, that's separation of church and state. The, the Supreme Court has made clear that, no, that's not a violation of church and state. Uh, you have to apply the program equally to religious and non-religious schools. So I just wanted to point that out. Um, right here in, in our local community in Woodland Park, Colorado, Concerned parents got together and uh, put together a plan to start a charter school. Now, this charter school, it is part of the public education system, but it's separately administered, and they, they can control their own curriculum to a large extent. Um, it's not a Christian school, so it doesn't fully solve the problem, but the, the regular public school system that has all the union control and everything like that, they are now competing for state dollars with that charter school because the dollars that go to a school are determined based on the number of students they have. So a lot more, a lot of students are now going to the charter school. So that's another element there. I don't think it's a, a full answer because they still cannot bring, um, uh, under the current state of the law, can't really bring in a Bible teaching or uh, uh, references, you know, like school prayer and that kind of stuff. But, but uh, I think that that is going to fall soon and uh, looking forward to that day. Um, you know, I think homeschooling is something every responsible parent and family should look at before God. Um, if there's any way to do it, you need to do it. Um, if you can't afford a good private Christian education, uh, you know, then perhaps you can homeschool. And even private Christian education, in my judgment, sometimes uh, just because it says Christian on the sign doesn't mean that the worldview is being uh, included in all aspects of their education. Uh, we've Correct. seen that in many different ways. So I, I'm not bad mouthing that. I'm just going to say, don't you know, to parents out there, you you can't just assume that it's a true Christian education. They may have a chapel once a week, but. Um, I'll never forget, uh, Quinn, when my kids were in a private Christian school back in Oklahoma and my son came home with science homework and they're teaching him evolution. And then later he comes home with homework and they're talking about, um, uh, you know, Marxism as a good thing. And I was like, what in the world is this? And so I made an appointment, went up there and spoke to a science teacher and I, I said, uh, have you guys, you know, tried to find uh, Christian material out there that you could teach from a creation perspective? Because there's tons and tons of evidence uh, behind creation science. And, and his response was, uh, well, we looked and we couldn't really find uh, anything that met our academic standards. And I just said to him, I said, you didn't look very hard. And uh, that I was the end. Uh, yeah, there, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, publishing company uh, called Apologia that that science oh, yeah. material is more difficult than most of the science stuff that's in public schools. I promise you that. So that's why I said you didn't look very hard. We, and we use Apologia. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, um, so that was the last day in public in private Christian school for, for our kids. So they're not all created the same. There are some really good ones out there. Like I'm sure these schools that you're launching in churches down there are probably really solid. And uh, there are many that, that are, but just uh, to the folks listening, don't, don't take that for granted. Um, all right, well, it looks like um, 
Uh, we've got Peter back on the, on the phone here. I'm not sure what happened. He may have a, a follow-up question. So let's go back to Peter in California here. Uh, Peter, you're on the air again. Do you have another question for Pastor Quinn? Thank you for taking me. Uh, yeah. Does the government have the constitutional right to own education? Mm. That's a that's a Richard question. Okay, <laughs> the answer is clearly no. In fact, yeah, some, I, pe some people would say that government doesn't have a lawful uh, a role to play at all in education. Um, <clears throat> when uh, uh, biblically speaking, the duty to educate children falls on families first and the church second. And uh, parents have the primary and fundamental right and obligation to educate their children and to control that education under, under the Bible. In the history of America, that's how it was done uh, for generations. The public school movement, when we say public, we, we ought to replace the word public with government. So it's basically the government school system that we have today was first instituted, began to be instituted in the 19th century and in the early 20th century. And the people that were behind that movement were not Christians, they were secular humanists. And they knew in uh, somehow we didn't, the church didn't realize what was happening, but but those people in their in their communications with one another, in their writings, in their speeches, they acknowledged that they they wanted to get control of schools and education because if humanism was going to uh, prevail, uh, the only way they were going to do that was by capturing the minds of the youth. And to do that, they had to get control of schools. And so they created a plan. And what they did is they went state by state and passed public compulsory education laws, which said that we're, we're going to have state-run schools and every parent ha is responsible to make sure that Johnny and Susie uh, attend class every day. And if they don't, they'll violate what are called truancy laws and the government will come find you and arrest you and stuff like that. That's where that originated. So uh, I think absolutely the government uh, does not own education for sure. Uh, do they even have a lawful role in it? That's subject to debate. So that's my answer. Quinn, did I miss anything? No, I mean, we'd be far better off without pu public education. I'll just leave it there. Um, mm. If we could get rid of the whole thing, uh, we'd be in a very different boat right now if it wasn't for public education. We know the, and this goes to the bigger question, I think, doesn't it, of why are, why is America quickly becoming a post-Christian nation? Why are we seeing the numbers so drastic right now? I was just at a conference last week and uh, George Barna presented in um, the, the Gen Zers uh, only have a 2% of them have a worldview, biblical worldview, 2%. Um, yep. we, the only 63, maybe 60% now of Americans uh, identify with as Christian. That doesn't even mean they know Jesus personally. It just means they claim the label. Um, and so uh, we're in desperate shape. And I think it's because the church has withdrawn from these areas of influence and we've surrendered them to um, people that don't believe in God and don't believe in the Bible and that want to drive God out of these areas. And that's where the whole idea of secularism came from. And the Supreme Court was brought into it and misinterpreted the First Amendment. And so we're, we're scratching and clawing our way back. I do think we're getting there. Um, there like I said, the, the Supreme Court cases in the, the last three, four years have been just incredible. Um, and, and the church is awakening uh, people like you, Quinn and, and others who are, who are, you know, getting on their knees before God and finding answers to this and, and making a way. Um, but it's going to take a lot more than just you. It's going to take pastors everywhere. No offense, right? <laughs> it's going to take pastors uh, all over the country to start doing this. That's why I want to get the word out about this. 
Yeah. So, so with that said, let me ask you this, um, with about two minutes left in this segment, um, what, is there anything unique or special about your situation or is what you're doing something that churches or pastors in any community can do? Yeah, I mean, there, there might be some fine details that work differently from state to state uh, with some of these programs, but I think this is something anybody can do if they really put the effort in to do it. And, and what I mean by that, especially in education, uh, a church can start a private school. Um, if the church is willing, uh, or they could support homeschool families, whatever that looks like, they could support them. Uh, a church can get involved, and this isn't even an area that's questionable legally, right? When you look at government, you know, there are scare tactics that the IRS might use. You might be worried about polarizing your congregation. Education just isn't that way. I have not found hardly any, if any, um, Christians inside churches who say, no, no, this is bad. We shouldn't be getting private Christian schools as an option for children. Um, everybody's a fan of this. It just takes work to make it happen. And so I think if people are willing to be creative, uh, look at what the resources are uh, in their state or their community, uh, look at what grants are out there. There are a lot of private grants. There are a lot of ways to help make uh, schools happen. Uh, if you have someone who's willing to just do the groundwork, uh, set this up, um, I think this can be done anywhere. And, and I think it needs to be done everywhere um, mm -hmm. between private schools and then supporting homeschool families so that they can be more successful. Well, so, so tell me this with just a minute left in this segment, mm -hmm. Quinn, you, you must have an amazing senior pastor at your church mm -hmm. that has given you the freedom and the backing uh, to do this. Can you comment on that? Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to you know, toot his horn or anything like that, but, but yeah. it strikes me as probably unusual. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, he's, he's very open um, if you have a plan. And so I would tell you, if you're in a church, uh, whatever function, and you want this to happen, uh, don't just go kind of off the wall with no idea of how this would work. Go with a plan. I'm happy to chat with people. Go with a plan. How will this work? Uh, and if you have a great pastor like I have, uh, they are going to be interested in getting kids out of the system. Mm. Yeah, and, and influencing uh, culture, right? Maybe yep. uh, influencing government and business and other areas of, of your community. Okay, well, we're up now against our second break, and, I, and so we're going we're gonna to take a pause here for a minute and a half, and we'll be back with Pastor Quinn Freiberg right after that. We got to stop looking at this word as someday. We got to look at it, it is for now. And the Spirit of God, don't you think is big enough to teach you, to show you how to do things? Stop thinking that one day when I am super spiritual or when I have the money I need. No, start doing what He called you to do right now with the strength you have. So Father, we say yes to that today. Hey, you know, a big part of what we do here at Truth and Liberty is to provide you with the resources that you need in order to stand for truth in the public square. So I want to remind everybody to go to our website and check out our resources page at truthandliberty.net slash resources, where you can find material that discusses just about every issue we're facing today in our culture. And these are things that are prepared by our strategic partners and some of the uh, most influential and important organizations in America today. 
It's not enough to know what God's will is, but you have to learn how to do things God's way. Now, because of the new man on the inside of me, because of the cross, I can daily deny self. And if you don't learn to do that, you're not gonna fulfill all God's will for your life. You know, you don't find the beginning of God until you get to the end of yourself. Okay, well, welcome back to the Truth and Liberty Live Call-In Show. I'm Richard Harris, and my special guest today is Pastor Quinn Freiberg. And uh, this has been just a really fascinating conversation we've been having. Um, we've been talking about a program that Pastor Quinn is leading called Forge Pueblo. Pueblo is Pueblo, Colorado, uh, a, a moderate-sized community in southern Colorado. And uh, we've been talking about how they have been tackling the seven mountains of cultural influence there in creative ways, uh, totally legal ways, um, and making a huge impact. And so, um, Quinn, I've got a question for you, and that is, um, so you're, you know, people might be watching and they might be thinking, well, you're a pastor. What can I do? I can't do this. I'm just, uh, I'm just Johnny member of the church. You know, uh, I have work a full-time job. What am I going to do? Do you have any thoughts or encouragement for our viewers that are watching about how they might, even as a quote unquote layperson, uh, be yep. able to get something like this going? Yeah, I, I think first off, um, I would say, I actually have a full-time job outside of this as well. Uh, this does not have to be a full-time job uh, to be able to impact our community. And so if you have five hours a week that you're willing to put in intentional effort, uh, you can still make a huge difference. So that's just the first thing I would say. Uh, second, if you're not a pastor, um, I would suggest still talking to your pastor. Mm -hmm. um, now, if you're wanting to uh, kind of take the lead on something, um, then you, you want to make sure you're, you're well established at the church. You don't want to walk into a church and two weeks later say, I want to start this large program. So if you're at your home church, you're connected there, um, I would sit down with your pastor. I would say, hey, I think it would be great if we could find a way to kind of network churches to impact our community in this way. Uh, but I but I promise you, the first thing your pastor is going to think is, who is going to do this? That's, mm -hmm. that's the first question. Um, as a general rule, your senior pastors are not looking for more stuff to do. It's just typically not the case. And so if you're going to go present this, I, I would be careful not to present it unless you're ready to be part of the team that actually makes this happen. And if you go and you say, I am willing to help with this, I am willing to start coordinating this, um, I think you'll have a lot better reception if they know I've got boots on the ground already, this is not all going to fall to me. And then from there, you want to work with your pastor to create kind of this initial team between multiple churches or people you know who are at other churches, start to pull together this team of people who are connected in churches around your town and create the plan, create the mission, the vision, a few first steps that you're going to take, programs, whatever that looks like, and then invite pastors and present it to them. So Quinn, is there, uh, do you have any kind of materials that would be helpful to people who might be inspired by what you're doing? Yeah, we, we have uh, some material. We don't put everything on just because 
we don't want them to know everything uh, mm -hmm. to the general public. But ForgePueblo.org uh, will have a lot of the kind of big picture material on what we do. Um, if you want more detail than that, I, I'm happy uh, to send you more information. Um, if you're if you're really wanting to dive deep and and start an organization somewhat similar, I will let you look at our articles of incorporation, our bio. I'll let you look at how we structured everything that we structured. I have no problem. Um, I don't put it out publicly. Uh, the website is public and available. But anybody who wants kind of another depth of information, I'm happy to help out as well if they email me. Yeah. Okay, and so uh, that website again, do we have that ready, guys? Can we put that up, forgepueblo.org? Correct. Okay, so that would be, looks like we don't have it pre-prepared, so F-O-R-G-E-P-U-E-B-L-O, P-U-E-B-L-O.org or org. Correct. And then, um, uh, so uh, did I hear you say they can email you? I don't want to throw your email address out there yeah. publicly unless you're okay with that. So <laughs> yeah, they your... can email me. Okay. Uh, Quinn, Q-U-I-N, at ForgePueblo.org. Okay. All right. There you go, folks. So, um So super exciting. Well, you mentioned uh, that Pueblo, like every city in America now, it seems like, has a homelessness problem. Um, and homelessness in Colorado is actually probably more severe than it is in many states. Um, and there are reasons for that. Um, policies that the government adopts or doesn't adopt are contribute to the homelessness problem in a major way. But what are you guys considering doing anything to help with that uh, directly in Pueblo? I guess there's a few different approaches. Um, the, the people that we're working with as far as elected officials, uh, the people we're trying to get in office, um, we've worked with them to design some ideas, some plans on how we might be able to address it on a large scale. Um, we have worked with the, the homeless shelters, things along those lines, um, to get volunteers and funding. But really in Pueblo, uh, our, our biggest problem when it comes to homelessness, or the, or the biggest obstacle uh, is mental health, uh, because the state hospital, which was located in Pueblo, uh, shut down and everybody just went to the streets. Uh, and then on top of that, we had uh, marijuana become such a big deal in Colorado with a huge emphasis on Pueblo, uh, to where we have that population of the addicted who are coming here. So a lot of what this ends up being would be individual churches having recovery programs that then also help the individuals out of homelessness in the process, uh, if, that, if that makes sense. There, there's layers to 95% of homelessness in Pueblo. If we find a family who just has a rough patch that they hit, it's usually pretty easy to help get them into a house of someone in the congregation, get them on their feet again, help them get a job. Uh, but in Pueblo, it's it's layers, which I know that's the case in a lot of places. Uh, just exaggerated here, so much drug addiction and mental illness in the homeless population. Well, thank you for everything you are doing to help with that. Um, I know, like you said as well, that a um, an abortion clinic was uh, authorized to open there in Pueblo. I think, or or was almost opened. How did that turn out, and what did you guys do to to fight against that? Yeah, so uh, Dr. Leroy Carhart, who's passed away now, um, is a, was a late-term abortionist. 
Um, he was the one who actually would lobby to the Supreme Court for partial birth abortion. Um, so, so literally as bad as it gets as far as the individual. Um, he has a clinic uh, in Maine, in Nebraska, and last December opened one here. We found out, and by we, uh, it was the uh, head of the pregnancy center here, found out that they had plans to open the center. Um, it took them one day, I was very impressed, it took them one day to figure out that a corporation owned by Leroy Carhartt purchased a property in Pueblo um, that was zoned for medical. So they figured it out really fast. Uh, what happened then, um, we, uh, without giving away too much information, did what we could to delay the process. Um, and then once we couldn't delay any farther, uh, we had uh, two friends on city council. Um, we knew city council was against us by and large, but we tried running a sanctuary city for the unborn ordinance. Um, that did a lot of good to rally churches uh, behind the cause and to get people motivated to change our local government. And so even though we went in knowing, you know, unless some miracle happens and a bunch of people convert and, and have a drastic change of their statements, uh, this wasn't going to pass, uh, but it served us very well as far as coordinating and rallying people. So. What we're doing now, there are efforts as far as sidewalk counseling, prayer groups. There are a lot of the, the traditional efforts. Uh, my focus has largely shifted to flip city council and the mayor office and see if we can just get a sanctuary city ordinance in uh, in order to shut it down entirely. Mm -hmm. So just so you guys know, uh, uh, abortion uh, partial birth abortion is where the baby is actually partly delivered and then murdered before the rest yeah. of his body can come out of the womb, and they call that yeah. abortion. Um, uh, and then um, uh, in Colorado, uh, abortion is legal up until birth, and uh, some might even argue a little bit after birth. Um, yeah. And we have one of the most radical uh, pro-death laws in the in the world on abortion, not just in America, but in the world. And so uh, it's a great place for an abortion clinic to open because they have basically unrestricted operation. And uh, so thanks for what you did there to fight against that. Let me, uh, let me shift gears and ask something. Um, Quinn, I think uh, <clears throat> you, uh, you, my guess is that most uh, ministry schools in America uh, most divinity schools or uh, whatever you call them, uh, seminaries, don't have a course on how to do what you're doing. <laughs> um, and no. uh, do, do you think that, um, that your approach, I mean, it seems so novel, but w should, should we start uh, talking to uh, seminaries and places like that to teach uh, would-be pastors and ministers about the importance of cultural engagement and how to do it. Yeah, and I, I think when we started, uh, we couldn't find a model, we looked. Um, there are people who have done bits and pieces, which is great, so I, I don't wanna say we invented everything we did, but by and large, there, there's a lot, uh, not as much as there needs to be, there's a lot on why we should do it, uh, but not really much on how to do it is what we ran into. Um, you can find resources on why is it important to impact these spheres and our communities. But then when it comes to the how do you take the first step, um, 
our, our model uh, is probably not the best model out there. There's probably a better model out there, but it's a model and, and it's ideal uh, only because our, our approach was very pragmatic with how we were trying to solve this. Um, I talk to people all the time. I want to impact my community. Where do I start? And, and it's always that very pragmatic, what do I do? Uh, that kind of holds people up. Uh, so I think it would be I think it would be great if people would teach. Here are different models or different ways. Here are some that have been done um, that you can rally the body of Christ to impact your community. Um, and I, I think it's got to be super practical. And I can't bring that. Um, I can't hit that point hard enough. It needs to be very practical for people because it's a daunting task. Yeah. How do you take community and change it? Um, and, and just trying to think through one sphere at a time and then give ideas of what it looks like in each of those spheres to do this. I think that'd be very helpful. Well, t- how did you get the idea for Forge Pueblo? And was there a spiritual journey involved in that process in some way? I mean, did you hear God calling you to do it? Were you wondering if, if maybe uh, you missed the Lord or how did you know God wanted you to do this? Yeah, I think um, it was the summer of 2018. Uh, what had happened is one of our city councilors was going for his master's uh, in divinity at, uh, I want to say, Liberty University and had to do an internship at a church. Uh, and so he interned at our church that summer. And so we got to talking. He's part of our board of directors. He's one of the candidates. He's the one that most people would know um, that we're, we're working with right now. We just got to talking. You know, it was kind of like daydreaming, like, what if all the churches just got together and worked together? It started in that kind of a conversation. And then by the end of the summer, we said, well, why not try? Um, pulled the team together, met with churches, and just decided we're going to try and see what happens. Um, you know, I, my perspective, um, you know, I, I have a call to ministry. I have a call to preach the truth uh, to, to the world, to impact our culture with the truth. And, and I think the reason why I did Forging Pueblo and why most of the, the initial board members did Forging Pueblo um, is because it, it needed to be done. Um, mm-hmm. It's a war and somebody's got to start fighting. And so, you know, it wasn't that, you know, I heard a voice from God. It wasn't anything like that. It was just, here's a war and we're losing. Um, mm. We're losing in the government. We're losing in education. We're losing everywhere right now. And, and we need to do things differently. And, mm. and so it was just a, an attempt to fight the war differently than we have been. Wow, that's that's awesome. So um, it it may be too early. I mean, five, four years is a while. Five years, six, whatever. But yeah. have you noticed a difference in Pueblo's spiritual climate? Have you seen an increase in church attendance uh, for those who participate? Are you seeing any um, any indications that uh, that Pueblo and your area is being more effectively discipled? Uh, Yes, I don't want to say it's because of us. I don't know, you know, the exact reason behind it all. I hope we've had an impact on that. Uh, what I think is helping, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of people are afraid, which I don't, I mean, I know why, but I don't understand why, I guess. A lot of Christians are afraid of the mass polarization that's happening right now in our culture. I um, mean, I think it's extremely healthy. 
Um, I think light and dark should not be mixed up too much. I think it should be very clear where the differences are. And I think, <clears throat> I don't know if overall church attendance has gone up, but I think uh, the amount of true committed Christians uh, has increased in churches. Mm-hmm. The, the, the ones who were just in it because it's a social club are, are starting to fade out as the polarization happens. And people are having to choose a side in that sense. And, and I think that's been very healthy. I think our community, uh, the churches are becoming closer knit and a tighter group. Um, and, and they're growing. They're, they're losing some people who really probably didn't belong. I know that sounds so mean to say, uh, yeah. but probably didn't belong there in the first place. Uh, you know, I had someone a few weeks ago, I gave a, a presentation on trans ideology and the dangers of trans ideology. Someone left our church because they didn't like it because it was mm-hmm. mean. For, they didn't even watch it. It was before the event even happened. They said it was mean and, and we're leaving the church. Um, and that's okay. That's okay. Uh, I mean, the Bible's clear. They, they also complained about abortion. That's okay. We're going to take a hard stance for life. We're going to take a stance for God made a male and female. And while some people will exit because of the polarized stances that are happening in society, at the same time, I think when the light and dark are polarized, the light shines all the brighter and you start to find people and people start to come in uh, who really are committed to the mission and are committed to Christ and follow his word. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm reminded of a couple passages in scripture. The, the first one is, um, I think it's John chapter six, when Jesus said that uh, he is the bread of life. And then later in the passage, he said um, that uh, uh, anyone who drinks his blood and eats his flesh uh, shall have eternal life and he'll raise them up on the last day. And it was at that, those comments that most of the people that were listening to him turned away. And Jesus then it turns to his own 12, to his disciples and says, will you leave also? Uh, he yep. did not care about the, the opinions of man. And uh, I think that that is an example that we all should follow. And then in 1 John chapter 2, John said, talking about those who, who left the faith, he said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. And so what you're saying, I think, is along these lines that, um, you know, the times we're in, praise God, are testing whether people really are committed to God and to his word. And if they're not, uh, these issues will expose that and they will have to make a decision. Either they get committed or they decide that this is not for them and they return to the world. So, yeah, I think that's a great perspective, Quinn. Well, hey, we've got another call caller on the line now I'd like to take. And this is a a question that's right up your alley, I think. Uh, I'd like to go to uh, AJ from Colorado. AJ, you are on the air. Hey, Pastor Bruce, Pastor Quinn. I was wondering, with all the divisiveness going on, how would you prove God's existence to those who aren't believing in the Bible? Like, they want to stay in your church, but they don't, they realize that they don't believe, you know? Mm. Uh, just so I, I heard correctly, it's how would you prove God's existence to someone who is in your church, but doubting and going the other way, essentially? That's That's the idea. I just, I didn't catch the first part, so I'm just making sure I heard correctly. Yes, sir. Okay. That's the general idea. 
Yeah, so, you know, there are so many ways uh, that you could answer the question. Um, and, and I think it's good for all Christians to know. I, I think the primary question that you need to uh, grasp and every Christian needs to grasp is why do you believe the Bible's true? Because ultimately, it's going to come back, when you ask me a question, it's going to come back to, I believe the Bible is true and the Word of God, therefore I have this position because God's revealed it to me. Um, why do I believe Jesus is God? The Bible is true. So it really comes down to why do you believe the Bible is true? And if the Bible is true, then obviously God is real. Um, I, you know, I can argue the cosmological, teleological, ontological, there are all these big picture arguments for the existence of God that you'll hear philosophers talk about. And those have their place. Um, but I like to give specifics. I, I'm not arguing for a generic God. I, I'm arguing that the God of Scripture is the true God, that Jesus Christ is God in flesh. So I would focus uh, on the Word of God, why it's true, and in order to do that, I would become familiar with the evidence that the Bible is an accurate document historically, and then showing them prophecies in the Bible that require an author outside of time in order to be able to predict the future, show them events in the Bible, like the Red Sea crossing, where we have archaeological evidence for those things taking place from Mount Sinai, um, and then uh, become very familiar with the historical reasons why we know Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, my, my focus is all on the Bible and Jesus Christ when I'm making this argument. Um, and, and I could develop any of those. I, I know we don't have time probably for full development of all of these things. Uh, in, in our school, uh, I taught worldview this morning uh, to a bunch of middle schoolers. And uh, every couple days in worldview, I take about 20 minutes and uh, I just challenge them. They get to decide who they're talking to. Is it Muslim Quinn, atheist Quinn, Buddhist Quinn? <laughs> they get to pick who they're talking to. And then they have to have a conversation with someone of an opposing view. And what they're figuring out is it always will come back to, is the Bible true? Mm -hmm. If you are going to convince someone Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, is the Bible true? That's what it comes down to. Manuscripts, archaeology, prophecy, the resurrection, those are the big picture arguments that I would use for the Bible being true. Yeah, and, and that's powerful, Quinn. I, the, the, um, there is so much proof of the accuracy of the Bible as, uh, as a historical document. In other words, the history right. that is in the Bible is accurate history. Um, yeah. is one, one point. Um, and and the, the prophecies that uh, are recorded in Scripture that have been fulfilled is, to me, the strongest proof right. of the inspiration of Scripture because there's no other option once you're, you're honest with yourself about it. Um, and, uh, and, you know, just messianic prophecies alone, uh, there are dozens of them. And I, who, who was it? I think, uh, I think maybe Josh McDowell's book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he, he shows right. how that somebody, uh, actually some statistician or, or, or whatever you call them, um, calculated the probability that all those things could come to chance that were prophesied about Jesus in His first coming could come to pass in one person by chance. And it was off the charts. It was one in, you know, 500 
kajillion trillion or something like that. Yeah. And you know, lots and lots of zeros, <laughs> right? Born in Bethlehem, uh, born of a virgin, of course, which is scientifically right. impossible. Um, but everything else about him, from uh, you know the the manner of his crucifixion, his death, and so many other things. But um, you know. Uh, Last night, just so happens, my wife and I were watching a program on YouTube, uh, some uh, a biblical archaeologist guy, and, and he was going to where uh, he be they believe that Sodom and Gomorrah are located, and mm -hmm. actually found in Sodom and Gomorrah, now the Dead Sea has uh, been drying up because Israel has been diverting the, the Jordan River for other uses. It's been drying up. And so he goes into the, the, bed, the seabed of the Dead Sea and he finds all, literally all over, sulfur balls all over the place yep. and embedded in the soil and all this sort of stuff. And uh, he, he takes one of them out and actually sets it on fire. And you can see the thing burning and melting and all of this. It's just, it's just incredible. And, it, and if you've ever been to Israel, um, one of the things that struck me about Israel was the accuracy of the Bible. I mean, right yep. there in front of your face is, uh, are, are uh, proofs. It's just like the Bible said. And I, I remember, for example, it, I don't know if you've been to Israel, but when we went to En Gedi, which is on the Dead Sea, uh, en Gedi is a little oasis of a there's, a, there's a stream that comes down from the mountains there on, in the Judean desert. And it, it's a little oasis in there because there's enough water for palm trees and jungle-like atmosphere just right in that little spot. Well, the Bible says that David went to En Gedi when he was fleeing from Saul yep. and hid in a cave. And that's where he cut the corner of Saul's robe and uh, some other things. And the scripture even points out that there are Ibex, I think, or what they're called, or mountain goats in En Gedi. And, and I tell you what, we're walking up the pathway into En Gedi, and you look up on the side of the mountain, and there are the goats. And uh -huh. have, there's David's cave, and everything was, that's just one example, exactly like the Bible portrays. So, yeah, that's awesome that you do that. Do you have any books or resources that you've created on that people can access on apologetics? Yeah, I have. Um... I have six books on apologetics right now. So if you go to uh, quinfreiberg.com, you can see some of them there. Um, I, I would recommend as, as kind of an introduction, if you want archeology, span something behind that, uh, the film's patterns of evidence were done really well, uh, especially the first one that has to do with all the evidence for Israel being in Egypt and Joseph and Moses. Uh, so Patterns of Evidence is great uh, as a documentary. You can get it online for free. Just look it up. Um, and that would be a good way to start showing someone, look, the Bible says thousands of years ago, this happened. They lived right here. And look what we find, exactly mm -hmm. where it should be, how it should be, um, to the point where we have an increased number of baby graves at the time of Moses, uh, when Moses is growing up, because Pharaoh executed a bunch of baby. I mean, the, the minor details that are confirmed uh, is astounding. So um, I, I do have a website. I, you know, my, my books um, you can get, but Patterns of Evidence is a great, is a great option uh, to kind of get into the archaeology side. So your personal website is quinnfreiberg.com? Yeah. 
B uh, both names, Quinn Freiberg. Okay. All right, yeah. folks, we'll check out Quinn's website and uh, take advantage of some of his resources there. Um, and uh, also, if you're so inclined, look up Patterns of Evidence and, and pick yeah. that up. And um, so, so let me just ask you to close, close us out, Quinn, by talking about the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Why don't you give us a, just a yeah. two and a half minute little lesson? Yeah. Uh, when you look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, obviously in many ways, uh, Paul says this is what it's all built on, right? If Jesus is still dead, our faith is, is worthless. Uh, if Jesus' uh, body was found right now, and you know, I don't think it ever will be, I'm not expecting this, but if you could hypothetically prove that, it's time to go back to Judaism at that point. Um, but it's not going to happen because he did rise from the dead. Here's kind of how the argument works. We look at what we know historically. What do we know for sure took place? Uh, Gary Habermas is probably the uh, world expert on the resurrection. Uh, he wrote a book that uh, I'm losing the title, but he developed what's called the uh, critical fact approach to the resurrection. He said, if you just take kind of these five key things we know for sure, Jesus died of crucifixion, you look at Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. You look at the tomb is empty on the third day. Even the skeptics in the first century didn't argue that. The disciples think he appeared to them. Whether or not he did, set that aside for a moment. The disciples think that he appeared to them. Uh, you take other things like oh, Roman guards were set there. You take those facts that are just historically neutral things Right? The disciples thought it happened. They were willing to go die, so they thought it happened at least. And then you analyze every possibility, and you will quickly find out there's only one possibility. Uh, the only thing that explains all of these things is going to be he actually rose from the dead, which is why all of the disciples, uh, with the exception of John, are dying for the faith. Not that the tomb was empty, but that they saw Jesus afterwards, that yeah. Jesus was alive. We know that he died, uh, no matter what the Muslims say. We know that he died of crucifixion. We know that he was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. We know the tomb was empty. We know the disciples thought they saw him. We know his brother, his half-brother converts. We know Paul converts. You just put all of these pieces together. There is no other option how you explain these. And they've tried. They've tried. Maybe Jesus had an identical twin, right? <laughs> I'm serious. That's a theory that's been published. And they say maybe Jude is Jesus's identical twin. But why would James believe? James would be their brother yeah, as well. That's crazy. Would know the right? He had yeah. the scars in his hands and feet. That's not going to happen. So the only possible conclusion, historically, Jesus rose from the dead, which is why the Bible says he rose from the dead. Yeah. You know, uh, we've got 15 seconds left. The apostles never would have given their life for something that they knew was a lie. Right. Uh, and uh, that's just the stopping point, I think, from any logical assessment yeah. of the situation. So Jesus Christ, praise God, is alive. And this is the end of the Truth and Liberty show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Quinn. God bless you all. We'll see you again next time. Thank you. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.